I want to thank everyone for coming. Uh, my name is Dr. Armina Ishkanian. I'm a lecturer in social policy and the program director of the MSc in NGOs and Development. And it's my pleasure to welcome our distinguished panel this evening and to welcome all of you to our debate on um, fair trade. The title is Who Owns Fair Trade? A debate on who benefits, influences, and controls fair trade. This event has been organized, co-organized by the LSC Center for Civil Society and Trading Visions. And just to give you an idea of how events will run, um, each of the speakers will speak for seven minutes, and then we will have um, a question and answer discussion with the audience. Um, the topic of today's lecture is fair trade. Some of the questions we will discuss include the idea of fair trade has become increasingly popular amongst consumers and some producers, but who does it really benefit? The producers, the consumers, the farmers, and these are just some of the issues that the panel will discuss, and hopefully we will have a robust debate. So the order of speakers, the first to, go, um, to speak will be Kate Seabag, who is the co-founder of Tropical Whole Foods. Kate has worked in Uganda developing fair trade fruit drying, and she has worked extensively in the development of Tropical Whole Foods' mainstream food marketing effort. The second um, to speak will be Raja Banerjee from India. Um, Raja is a tea plantation owner from the fair trade certified Makyabari tea estate in Darjeeling. His pioneering work has been to convert the Makyabari estate to organic permaculture. Third um, to speak will be Katie Stafford, who is a sustainability consultant at PricewaterhouseCoopers, focusing on sustainable business strategy, fair business practices, sustainable raw material sourcing, and communication to stakeholders such as the media. Our fourth speaker will be Daiborn Charlie Chibonga, who is the chief executive officer of the National Smallholder Farmers Association of Malawi which represents over 100,000 small-scale farmers. And Dyborn also serves on the board of the International Nut Cooperative, which is selling fair trade nuts under its own UK brand, Liberation. And last but most certainly not least is Pauline Tiffin, who is an independent consultant and founder of two fair trade companies, Cafe Direct and Divine Chocolate. She is also a founding member of the International Federation for Alternative Trade and the Small Farmers Cooperative Society. So without further ado, Kate, please. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming this evening. It's a great turnout. Um, <clears throat> Who owns fair trade? The activist and academic Robin Murray recently described fair trade as one of the broadest and most exciting social movements of today. And fair trade genuinely does allow connections to, make, to be made between an extraordinarily disparate and diverse set of people throughout the world. During Fair Trade Fortnight, which has just begun this year and takes place every year, you see these broad international connections in action in the UK. Um, one of my own favourite moments, uh, memories of Fortnite, was taking Isaka Samande, a Burkinabe Muslim mango farmer, to a fair trade synagogue in Birmingham. So we had a West African Muslim in a British Orthodox synagogue. Isaka, with a lovely keeper on his head, 
talked eloquently about fair trade mango farming and processing and everyday life struggles in Yangaloko, in the west of Burkina, to an orthodox Jewish community in Birmingham. The world really did feel like a very small place that evening, connected by fair trade in a really positive way. And for myself, I'll always remember how exciting it was when our own company, Tropical Whole Foods, was still very new. And when we first saw our sun-dried pineapple grown and processed by farmers in the remote villages of Uganda on sale in the heart of the smartest part of London, in Knightsbridge, in Harvey Nichols. So these are the sort of exciting connections of trade and cultural exchange, which are part of fair trade. But to be honest, everyone involved in fair trade has stories such as these. And today, I think you're interested in us being a bit more penetrating and hopefully controversial, and I hope also thought-provoking. So I think it's a great question that Trading Visions and the LSE have come up with. Who owns fair trade? Whilst I love working in a fair trade company, so much of my working life is actually taken up with really very practical and mundane aspects of getting product to market, that uh, this is a rare opportunity to try and get my intellectual grey matter working again when thinking about this subject. So um, here goes. Of course, all of us in fair trade are working to increase the volume of fair trade. Campaigners, consumers, traders, producers, all of us. And in this way, we hope that every day more developing country farmers can benefit from new markets, good, fair prices, social premiums. Well, that much is obvious, but should not the fair trade movement also be talking about unfair trade? Since fair trade, by association and definition, also suggests that there is unfair trade. Should not fair trade also be talking, therefore, about changing unfair corporate trade? and more radically about changing the rules of international trade. I'm actually not going to touch on the latter and leave that to some of the other speakers, but I will talk a little bit about the former. Over the last two decades of fair trade, the movement has been very careful not to alienate the big brands and retailers, and in fact has actively sought to bring them on board. The message has undoubtedly been inclusive and reformist, not confrontational. This has succeeded in bringing into fair trade some very big names such as Nestle, Unilever with Ben & Jerry's, Cadbury's with Green & Black's, Tate & Lyle and of course all the UK supermarkets to a greater or lesser extent. The thrust has been that for fair trade to succeed it has to be mainstream and working with and through the big companies and supermarkets. Large volumes of fair trade have to be delivered to farmers and this could only be done with these big companies on board. And fair trade, therefore, should not remain marginal and in the fringes, and for these reasons should not take part in negative campaigning. Strangely, then, when in the 1980s fair trade activists might have been outside the big supermarkets campaigning against the sale of, for example, apartheid oranges, they now find themselves outside supermarkets promoting the sale of the fair trade products on sale inside. Is this good? Or has the movement just been co-opted by big business? The other reason why big companies have come on board with fair trade has been the great marketing campaign that the Fair Trade Foundation has run in the UK. In my opinion, the fair trade mark is not a brand, but in many ways it does behave like one with all the key triggers that good brands have. It makes people feel good about themselves when they buy it. It makes people want to be associated with it and to buy into it. It makes people feel they have the right values. And of course, 
What's unusual about fair trade is that its shine, its halo effect, if you like, can be used by so many. It's not, unlike brands normally are, exclusive. It can indeed be owned by any, by many, from Tesco's to the local primary school, from Ben and Jerry's to a tiny village on the west coast of Scotland. So long as you obey the rules, you can buy into fair trade. But the question we should ask ourselves is, are the rules of ownership tough enough? Are the claims the owners make bigger than they should be? Because sure enough, every owner of fair trade is able to invest different meanings into fair trade. Take Sainsbury's, whose mantra, our values make us different, was given an interesting twist by their CEO at a recent conference. He said, our, our customers want value for their values. Well, let's unpick that statement a little. To the cynic, that could mean Sainsbury's will buy fair trade and other ethical products. But beneath the veneer of delivering these values to their customer, the supermarket will still be trying to drive down supplier prices to ensure good value to customers, increase sales and shareholder profits. Well, are these values fair trade? Should fair trade products be discounted? And if they are being discounted, who's paying for that? It's unlikely that it'll be the supermarkets. So another way of looking at this statement, our customers want value for their values, is to say, yes, indeed, your customers do want value for their values. It's not enough now just to get the, the big companies, the big boys selling fair trade products. If large companies are to be allowed ownership of fair trade, let's make sure the rules are strict enough. And let's make ownership a little more stretching. Let's put leverage on, on them to use their huge profits to invest more fully in fair trade. So stop squeezing fair trade suppliers for promotional discounts. If the supermarkets want to increase volumes of fair trade sales in the current climate, then they should reduce their own margins. The supermarkets should invest in fair trade supply chains by supporting essential capital investments and contributing to training schemes for developing country farmers to crack into new markets. They have great expertise to share and enormous profits too. In 2007, Sainsbury's invested in a fair trade development fund, a fair development fund, which is administered by Comic Relief. This is a great start, but let's see much more of these initiatives from Sainsbury's and indeed from the other supermarkets. And let's commend them and the Department for International Development for EFRICH, which is the Food Retail Industry Challenge Fund. This is a scheme to encourage the big retailers to invest with government in increasing opportunities for African farmers. Let's see more of these sort of initiatives. Then we can begin to deliver real value to farmers in Africa and elsewhere in the developing world. And these sort of initiatives might genuinely allow companies to make claims that their values do indeed make them different and that they are part of the fair trade movement. So let's, as a movement, interrogate their claims. So many large companies now want to own fair trade. So let's make them work for it. Let's make the rules a bit tougher. Thank you. My name is Raja Banerjee, and I come from Darjeeling. Well, we have pioneered organics to global tea and biodynamics to trop the tropics. So in fact, you can call me a biodynamic bullshitter. My business is cows <laughs> and managing that excreta. Okay. And the rest of fair trade activities has actually emanated from that simple act. Healthy soil is healthy mankind. 
So you have to bring health into the soil before you can even think of treating everything fairly. We've been managing Makaibari for the four generations, so this is 150 years. So we are very proud of a lineage that we've been managing man and land and its prosperity for over 150 years. So in 1990, when Fairtrade Germany decided to look for a tea producer because the criteria under Max Havala coffee and cocoa had broken all barriers and demand for fair trade was really on the increase. Nobody could find a tea because tea was a British thing. Organized tea was a British thing. So they're only large tea holders all over the place. So around 1992, Transfair Germany stumbled across us because we had a lot of initiatives going in the ground which empowered ladies, which looked after the community as a fallout of sustainable holistic practices. I'm going to share a simple example that all of you all can relate to. Because I don't think there's anybody in this room who would not like to be free. Freedom is the ultimate attainment that we are all seeking. And everybody would like to be free. To be free, you have to be independent. And that initiative is always a dynamic release from the ground upwards. Everything is always a value addition at the end of the value chain. In 1992, when Transfer Germany came around to us, of course, we had a crisis in the board, board of directors, which is a strictly held family business. We did not want to go with a stamp labeled Transfer and at that point. Why? Because we thought it was a bit of a charity work. So there was a heated board discussion, and it was decided to let open a little chink and let transfer in to be certified. It was done so, and immediately one of the big collaborators in Germany supported us completely, and a lot of extra money came in. That money has a very transparent truth, which I want to share with you. It is, we decided there and then that the management of Makaibari will have nothing to do with the money. So it had to be sent through a very transparent route. The government of India has very strict rules for remittance of foreign exchange into any organization into India. So that was a plus. It's uh, a tough bureaucracy to crack. Then again, we got them, uh, got them tied up with coal in Germany to appoint an NGO which had a FCRA accreditation of foreign Currency Regulation Act. So there was audit and clarity at every little step. That money, when it came into the NGO, went straight to the Makaibari Joint Body. Now, the Joint Body is a very interesting body. They are elected members of the seven villages in Makaibari on a three-yearly basis. It has 17 members in its board. Twelve of them are ladies, and five of them are men. And uh, the moment the first batch of funds came in, which was quite substantial at that point, about 20,000 pounds at the first go, they didn't go mad. They weren't bankers, the ladies mostly, they weren't bankers. They weren't money lenders, they weren't stock market dealers. They were plain high school graduates. But they jolly well knew exactly how to spend that money and what were the projects that would be most effective on the ground. 
It was a sense of pride, self-esteem, and it was wonderful. It was a wonderful initiative that was released. And ladies anywhere in the world that my travels have take, taken me work the hardest, bend their backs the hardest, but are always relegated to second-class citizen trip. And our community was no different. So this initiative, when they got the money in their hands and they used it for projects, released a plethora of activities which were extremely dynamic and sustainable. For example, the health services, the health and hygiene, pre and post maternal care, latrines, open you know, toilets, etc., etc., all built in-house with community activities. It released a host of activities that created a grassroots entrepreneur. I want to share a small story about you which is really holistic in its approach, which this joint body initiated. There was a, in a, one of the seven villages was a particularly uh, marginalized lady called Jamuni Mangarni. It's, uh, the, that's one of the feature stories in the recent book that's been released by Cambridge University Press on Makaibari. It's called The Cow That Saved the Community. So I'll just narrate that to you briefly. And uh, she, she really had a tough time to make ends meet. Her husband had even left her with three small children. So the joint body came in and gave her a cow, just a cow, from this corpus that's there. She got help from her neighbors in the village. Somebody helped her build the shed. Somebody helped her look after the cow to feed it, and so on and so forth, with the promise that the firstborn female calf would be passed on according to the helpers that was accredited. So when the first calf arrived, the milk that she got from the cow changed her life completely. As not only did the children have better milk, but she sold the surplus and earned some extra money. And in due course, the entire community started prospering with the different cows they got. Then the John body moved in two years later and gave her a biogas unit. It's a very simple unit. All you do is you, the smell in any excreta is the smell of the gas methane. When you slurry it, it separates, it's trapped in a hot, sorry. And uh, you take a little lead, a pipe from it and you burn it and bingo, you get a non-polluting renewable energy on tap. So the woods were saved. The care and the maintenance of the cow and the unit provided generated employment on the ground. The sale of milk and compost provided uh, lots of extra income. And uh, in due course of time, Germany had was in such a position, three years ago she came back and donated 10,000 rupees, which is a substantial amount, amount of money, to start on the Germany chapter. So this is the impact that fair trade premiums can have. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, last night when I got it, I just couldn't sleep for some reason or the other. And I went into the virtual archive and I just had a look to see what was the impact of the global financial meltdown on fair trade sales, as well as organic sales. I found that organics had been hit to the tune of 12%. But fair trade, luckily, seems to have taken the blow very well and there was a slight increase. So it seems that people are still supporting the philosophy of fair trade and there seems to be a great deal of awareness for fair trade produce. So I must congratulate everybody over here who's come here. That it's your interest and awareness that has sustained the philosophy and I'm sure is going to take it to the next level. Because when the going gets tough, 
the tough get going. Thank you, thank you all of you for thank the support. You. I'm Katie Stafford from PricewaterhouseCoopers. Um, I'll just start by declaring a few of my interests because you might think, what's a bean counter from PwC doing here? <laughs> um, I used to be at Marks & Spencer um, where I was responsible for introducing 100% tea, coffee um, and jam there. Also did the biggest launch of fair trade cotton um, in the UK whilst I was at M&S. Um, now I consult with big business who are all thinking through the ramifications of the current economic downturn and um, how they play into their very big concerns about sustainability and what impacts climate change, development, trade are all going to have um, on their businesses in the future. Um, I am also a big con consumer of fair trade products, a passionate supporter and a friendly critic. Um, and think that this type of debate is absolutely vital for fair trade at the moment because there is a new, uh, a new world order coming and I think fair trade has really got um, the opportunity to sort of, t you know, take the lead and, and do something a, a, a little bit special, a little bit different. Um, but it has to adapt to changing consumer attitudes, changing business attitudes. And um, sometimes people come along to these fair trade events and all kind of tap each other on the back and get really excited. And I think this sort of debate is just what's needed. So I am going to challenge some of the things that Kate said, um, because I am the face of big business tonight. Um, and I'm going to talk about the need for more partnering rather than policing of big business because I think big business um, at the moment has there's a real opportunity to harness the power of trade that's what fair trade is all about fair trade doesn't work in spite of business it works because of business and so profit and the purpose of fair trade have got to go hand in hand um, so get, getting back to the question before um, before I start answering who owns fair trade I wanted to look at what is fair trade um, and Kate and I have already had a bit of a disagreement on this today because basically um, I think fair trade is two things. I think it's a movement and that's how it started. But I also do think it's a brand now. It's a very powerful consumer brand. Um, and being a movement and a brand has real strengths and that's what has propelled fair trade forward over the last 10 years. But it also has its weaknesses and its conflicts. Um, so, a movement is a group of people with a common ideology who try to achieve certain goals together. And you can't own a group of people, as far as I'm aware. Um, you can provide them with leadership, you can provide them with information, um, which the Fairtrade Foundation do brilliantly well, but you can't own them. Um, the other thing is, the people that are the movement, fair trade, two words, um, they like to uh, call for fair trade and they like to talk, um, you know, work against unfair trade. Um, so in many cases they're talking about working against the big business, the big brands, the retailers with all the power and none of the risk at the end of the supply chain. Um, and you know, this is one of the tensions that fair trade is having to deal with because you've got the movement on the one side. Um, and then you've got the brand. And I think um, brand is something that, as a business person, you can kind of contemplate a little bit more the concept of, of ownership. Um, so as I'm talking from the point of view of big business, I thought I would use a business metaphor and think about the concept of ownership um, in terms of a publicly limited company. 
Um, so if you were thinking about a publicly limited company, the owners are the shareholders. They're the people that put money in and they expect a return um, for their investment. So if you think about it using that metaphor, um, the owners or the shareholders are the producers, they're the manufacturers and they're the retailers. They're all profit-making entities, they're all investing money and time in fair trade and they all expect a return. Um, I would also argue that the consumer makes an investment in fair trade. They don't expect a financial return, but they do expect a return, and that's something that I'll come back to later. Um, so you've got this brand being potentially owned by these shareholders with financial interests. Um, I would say around that, to keep the metaphor going, um, which I'll do for a little bit longer until someone tells me to shut up. Um, you've got the, the investment analysts or the people that create the market sentiment. They're the NGOs, they're the media, they're the faith groups, they're the consumer groups. And they're the people that are sort of um, telling the shareholders where the value is in fair trade and, and, and creating, you know, creating that value. Um, so... If the metaphor works then, we want those with a stake in fair trade, the shareholders, which are the retailers and the brands and the manufacturers and the producers and the ATOs, we want those guys to real, feel ownership and to understand what fair trade is um, and to have a stake in its future um, in order for it to be successful. Um, and so this is something that Fairtrade has been grappling with over the last few years, but I believe it's about to become even more important that Fairtrade sort of starts to sort out this dilemma and starts to think about partnering more with business than policing them. Um, as brands grow and as movements grow, so does the level of critique and the movement against them becomes stronger. So there is something about having a really good strength and clarity of message going forward. Um, the movement for fair trade is um, fair trade two words is also likely to need to become a bit more vociferous against some of the um, brands that fair trade is linking up with because in tough times businesses make tough decisions and some of those tough decisions are going to be the discounting the fair trade products and that sort of thing so there are going to be some more you know more tough decisions to come in terms of the movement versus the brand. Um, also in tough times, businesses become more risk averse, they want more certainty. And if businesses on the outside of fair trade um, being policed, that, that leaves them in an uncertain world. And as there's more competition for fair trade from organisations such as Rainforest Alliance and, and others, or retailers can create their own schemes, that's when they start to think, oh, you know, is fair trade all a little bit difficult? Whereas if, they're an ownership, uh, if they've got an ownership stake, they, they have a, you know, a stake in that business and they want it to, to work going forward. So I had a little look on the Fairtrade website before I came and looked at how they describe their stakeholders. And they actually call the NGOs that are um, sort of the founders of Fairtrade, their NGO shareholders. Um, and what I would like to argue is that Fairtrade needs to become more business focused and actually turn the way it thinks about its shareholders on its head because at the moment the shareholders are the NGOs and you've got business on, on the outside paying the license fee, being policed. More, they are doing more partnering, but it's kind of like the core group should be the businesses and the, the analysts and the influencers should be around that. So it might be controversial, something to debate about later, but um, that's, you know, that's what I think. 
Um, for the smallholders that are working in fair trade and all the businesses in between, they need to be working a lot more together to create more trade, to create better trade, and all of that has got to be absolutely business-focused with a really, really strong business case, um, particularly at the moment. Um, finally, just before uh, I get checked off the stage, um, I wanted to talk about consumers. And I said at the start, you know, consumers are a shareholder as well. Um, they invest in fair trade, but what do they get out of it? Well, I think at the moment, consumers get a bit of a warm, fuzzy feeling, and businesses have been quite lazy, I think, to sort of put lots of nice children with wells on their um, marketing materials and so people are getting a kind of warm fuzzy feeling and actually in an economic downturn consumers become a lot more local in their views they don't become less compassionate but they become more local they want more things that help their local community and so I think if we continue to just be lazy with telling consumers that there's just a warm, fuzzy feeling um, associated with fair trade, we're in trouble. What we really need to do is to talk about empowerment and you know, moving sustainable development in our global economy forward rather than just the um, kid getting a well, because fair trade is about so much more than that warm, fuzzy feeling. Um, so in conclusion, fair trade stands at a tipping point today um, in its own existence and also in the development of the world economy. There's a chance to genuinely get involved in that debate about creating a new world order. The businesses of the future are the ones that are trusted, that are connected, the ones that have win-win situations, not, not you know, where we've been before. And so fair trade is really, it can take that up, it can succeed, if it allows all the organisations that are part of fair trade to get involved, to work together and to do what they do best. Um, failure in the mission not only spells disaster for the millions of producers and the millions of consumers that trust in fair trade, but I think it would actually spell a much greater disaster because there's so much faith in that brand and there's so much work gone into building it. So it's kind of like, come on, fair trade. Um, there's, you've done well, but there's a lot more to do over the next few years. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you. Now we've got lots of points. Okay, our fourth speaker is Daiborn Charlie Chifunga. Thank you. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's a pleasure for me to come all the way from Malawi to take part in this debate and also take part in other events around Fair Trade Fortnight. So, who owns Fair Trade? There is a vast difference between the ideal and the reality. The ideal is that fair trade should be a partnership along the value chain for any product. The producers work hard to earn a living from the land. However, many of the world's producers are in the developing countries where soil and weather conditions and the will to survive combine to give them a comparative advantage over the producers from the developed countries. The major markets for their produce, unfortunately, are in the developed countries which have the economic means and also the facilities to add value to their raw produce. The irony has been that the policies of the multilateral trading system are such 
that producers have been placed at a disadvantage and often they sell their produce at prices that are below their costs, hence resulting in a downward poverty spiral. Most of the benefits of world trade have been to the major corporate giants of the world. Enter fair trade as an alternative to support smallholder producers to get access to world markets on fair and equal terms. Fair trade ensures the payment of a fair minimum price to the individual grower who belongs to a democratically selected group. And that group is governed by fair trade terms and has to be certified. There is a price that is paid which helps that producer to be able to make ends meet, to meet their livelihoods. And this price is guaranteed that even if there are problems in the world market resulting in prices dropping, the fair trade price is paid to that producer. To become fair trade certified, the smallholder producers have to meet certain social and environmental standards which are audited, which are monitored. The certification helps to improve their productivity and quality through good agricultural practices that meet the sanitary and phytosanitary standards demanded by you, the consumers. Compliance to the standards ends the producer's social premiums, which are used for community development. The premiums are based on the volumes of product that have been sold through the fair trade and they are supposed to be used for improving the living conditions of the communities in which fair trade producers live and work. The idea of being a partnership is that those at the end of the value chain do not support fair trade as a charity, but that they recognize that for the world to be a better place, world trade conditions have to be fair. Fair trade has been about empowering producers to enable them to compete on the world markets. While at the beginning fair trade products were few and may have been questionable in terms of the quality, the taste and the appeal, there has been a huge improvement in the range of products in their quality, in their taste, etc., etc. Many people thought that at the first signs of recession, the UK public would stop buying fair trade. But I am happy to say this hasn't been the case. Fair trade sales continue to rise, which can only be very good news for the farmers and their families in the world's poorer countries. For the farmers that I work with, the peanut farmers in Malawi, who supply Sainsbury's, Tesco, Morrison's, and so on with fair trade nuts for their own label products, it is good news indeed, helping people live with more hope for the future and a better way of life now. That the biggest names in the UK have so far 
embrace fair trade and continue to do so has meant the scale of the movement has grown like we could never have imagined some years ago. However, there are also the pioneers of fair trade, companies like Cafe Direct, Divan Chocolate, and our new nut company, Liberation, which are 100% fair trade, and as well as promising a fair deal to the farmers, are giving a real say to the farmers behind the products that are bought by UK consumers. That is a true partnership, and we can safely say that ownership of fair trade is by all those that are involved in that value chain. Liberation as a model company is a partnership where 42% of the stakes are owned by producers in Asia, Latin America, and Africa. Their equity was paid by Comic Relief. As co-owners of Liberation, the producers share in the rewards and the risks. By backing those pioneering companies, retailers and consumers can put their strength behind organizations, making a fundamental difference to these farmers in the developing countries. There is a need to grow the fair trade market, and organized producers should look at building their capacity to be able to meet the market demands and to have a say in how their products are sold. This is one of the reasons many producers invest their resources to visit the UK during fair trade fortnight and interact with others along the value chain. We can therefore safely say, while we may not have clarity, while we may not have a cut and dried answer on the question of who owns fair trade, there are segments along the value chain that are working to make sure that fair trade is owned by producers, by buyers, by processors, by retailers, and by consumers. And my challenge to you as consumers is that you have the resources, you have the talents, you have the skills to be able to ask big business whether they are owners of fair trade. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. And our, thank you very much. Um, and our final speaker is Pauline Tiffin. No, fine. Um, thank you. It's an amazing turnout. I'm just delighted. Um, it takes quite a lot to coax me out these days. I'm a kind of um, not much of a public speaker as I used to be. But I was reminiscing on my way here, and literally about this time of year, in 20 years ago, 1989, in a place not very far from here, South Place Ethical Society, otherwise known as Conway Hall, uncharitably known as the place of lost causes, we <laughs> convened a meeting. I wouldn't call it a conference. We didn't have the money to call things conferences in those days. We had a meeting because we were activists, and I worked in a very newly created company called Twin Trading, which had been set up by the GLC. And we called the meeting with the question to pretty much anybody we could think of to send the invitation to, and the question was, who cares about fair trade? And to my knowledge, it's the first time that we really started talking about fair trade, because before that we were into alternative trade, because our roots were 
post-colonization struggles, independence struggles, anti-American boycott of Nicaragua, Cuba. We had a, a very different premise for getting into trade, disillusion with aid effectiveness, which had really bitten everybody by the 60s and had become very statist and top-down and not at all what we would know of now as development or developmental. So I was ruminating who owns fair trade. And I thought that um, I would try to answer this, but to really probably um, obliquely by, by making a critique of where we've got to. Because I, I started out thinking, what's that expression? You, be careful for what, of what you wish for, right? Because you might get it. And I was trying to ask myself, honestly, the question when we started you know, who cares about fair trade or fairer trade, or as my dear pioneering colleague in the US calls it, slightly less unfair trade. <laughs> um, um, you know, when, when we set out, would, you know, am I happy at what, what's happened? And I think that I wanted to draw a line and say, yes, but I'm not happy that this is what the best that we can do under the umbrella ideal as Daibon put it, this is an ideal. This is not a blooming mark. Let's just put that to one side for a second. I'm going to get to the issue of a fair trade mark and who owns that, right? So, you know, this is about an idea. This is about action. This is about Obama-esque change. You know, this is different. So let's deal with that bit first. So I think... I'm happy because we have definitely been successful. You know, I never thought that I could, you know, uh, I had a coffee on the way here and there was a bar of divine chocolate and a geo bar, you know, and you name it, and all the, fair, all the coffee was fair trade and I hadn't even heard of the company that gave the coffee. It was like, this is cool. So, yeah, we've got take up. You can buy these products everywhere. We dreamed about having people not have to hike off to their unsanitary local health food store to get a <laughs> decent product that probably didn't taste very nice even when you got there. So yes, I'm really happy that we've got the first rule of commercial success is make it easy for people to buy things because they're not all dedicated twits, you know, and you know, they go a thousand <laughs> miles to get what's right. So then I say, well, okay, I'm happy because I also see we didn't lose all those really brave and exciting parts of what got us this far, which is people with real interest in society and global society and a trust in both the formal and the informal. Like if someone tells you about fair trade and you know who they are, you're going to believe them far more than some company saying they did it. You know, so I think those informal, the, the economy of trust is really what's underpinned so much of the growth of understanding and interest in fair trade. And I like it too because it's still so practical. So you have Kate saying, God, I don't have time to think about this. I'm still you know, trying to get things to, from this place to that place. And actually all fair traders you know, are up to here in really real things, and I think it's what makes it so important, because anyone who works in aid or development projects, and believe me, I've done my bit, is, you know, these things become so conceptual, 
you know, people are not people, they're beneficiaries, you know, you can imagine. So I like it because fair trade has actually managed to keep hold of what the whole thing is supposed to be about at that very core level. I like it because it's responsive. For example, after the tsunami, most fair traders who, who worked with people in that region not only got people spontaneously buying more of the um, East Timor coffee, but people voluntarily gave money for those farmers that were affected. You have created really live and responsive um, networks of consumers and doers, people who do things, not the Red Cross that might get there in about 10 months' time when everybody's already had to move somewhere else, but people who are there every day and they've got warehouses and they've got trucks and they know who's who and they've even got a list because they have to have it audited by the Fair Trade Labelling Organisation <laughs> certification body. And it's still really humane. And whilst I have lots of reservations about how producers' images are used, their names, their own stories, I have many reservations about how fair trade uses, and I mean that word in the worst negative sense, uses people from developing countries to create their own brand equity in the final market. I still think the fact that we've overcome a complete indifference and oblivion to who made something through the telling of these stories is irrevocable and humane and splendid. And so these are things to be very happy about. So I think we all benefit from that. The people who are most directly involved in the trade that's going on and the people who feel empowered by their ability to make a difference and that does include people who buy things it includes my sister it took me 15 years to convince her that fair trade was a good thing and she she now influences it because bless her heart she goes in and gives blooming tesco's a really hard time because they put her out of business because they she had a cake shop so she got it she got it this happened to me this happens to producers who controls fair trade let's get to where we're at and looking ahead too, because I think that, that's partly why I was invited. So I think that because fair trade isn't owned, it's not ownable, let's, let's just stop this nonsense. It cannot be owned, it is an idea, right? right? Actually, what happens is, when you have a really good idea, you have people jostling for the control of the idea, right? You can't control it by equity or shares. And you can't be, because we didn't set anything up that way, it evolved. This is a social movement and now an economic force. There's a, there's a vacuum, and in a vacuum you have constant battles for redefinition, constant battles for, oh, how would I put it? Well, let's not, uh, can we take the gloves off? Yes, we can. <laughs> for people's egos, you know, I speak for fair trade, right? I'm the most powerful voice in fair trade. And you have quite naturally, multiple purposes for fair trade. You know, me, I understand fair trade is to achieve this, its goal is this, it, this is what it exists for, this is what it makes sense to me. And perhaps for every single person who buys into fair trade in their own way, they have the right to say, I believe it, that it really means this, right? And I think that this is not a bad thing. This is not a bad thing. I would like to see more jostling in the sense that it allows for more scope, more opportunities to push priorities to the forefront, to influence what fair traders are doing and not doing. But here is where I come to the problems that I think that we've got. 
to in the fair trade process. I think it's really important that we remember that fair trade, one word, done so that they could trade market, because you couldn't have possibly created any ownership, formal, legal, in terms of intellectual property for the two words. Fair trade is a mark, and by God, it's supposed to be for a product, not a company, right? Fair trade is a process-oriented system that says the water in this bottle was produced in a way that conforms to these standards, and it should not say anything about the, com the, the company that gives you that product. And on the contrary, by now, the fair trade mark, you know, when companies bolt on a few products next to their rest of their ranges that have the fair trade mark on, are relishing and enjoying the fact that it completely disguises what their company is like. The fair trade mark makes no claims to judge companies and it has to beef up what it does to sort out the halo effect is not abused. And that is going to damage fair trade if we're not careful. Secondly, and perhaps this for me is the most important thing about the ownership question, fair trade has to recognise and be a part of making companies recognise that there is an unequal power relationship between people who produce and sell and people who buy, right? And every buyer up the chain has more power than the seller, but not as much power as the retailer, and not, enough, not as much power as the major, mature FMCG brands. Now, you couldn't have a Tesco without a Coca-Cola can in it, could you? So, you know, even Coca-Cola can tell Tesco what it wants. So the only way to do this is to have a structure, structures. Every time you hear the word partnership, I want you to ask yourself, show me the agreement. What's in this partnership? What does it mean? What have you promised? Can the producers argue back? Yeah? Are you going to drop them when you've decided it's not actually performing in the category to the extent that you wanted? What's the nature of the relationship that you're espousing with suppliers. What has that got to do with fair trade? And so it's not a partnership, and it ought to be a partnership, and only through formal partnerships, not the ideal, the real ones, right, can companies prove that this is not something that a bandwagon they're hopping onto while all the rest of their margins are sinking and their reputations are sometimes not so good these days. One more point. So I think that fair trade, the system of certification, has set up a really beautiful way to encourage quite rigorous advancements amongst small-scale producers. It's pretty tough. If you ask any of these people who are involved in it, it's really very tough to get a fair trade certification. And it provides a lot of stimulus but a lot of grief to producers. This is unequal because no major corporation has to reflect in its structures any commitment to fair trade. So a cooperative in any part of the developing world to be fair trade has to prove that it's this microcosm of beauty and social order and justice. And the, meanwhile, the, the, the corporation that distributes the money makes the most margin of all and is completely unaccountable for that margin doesn't have to prove a thing about its intentions. So I say, if we want more people involved in fair trade, 
in large business and in retailers, and we want the volume. Let's not get the volume at the expense of the content or the essence of fair trade. Thank you. Thank you very much. to thank everyone. There's sometimes an accusation that LSE debates aren't real debates. Everyone is saying the same thing, but today we really had very robust discussions. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Um, I just want to mention that we are recording this and it um, hopefully will be available as a podcast, so whoever asks a question should be aware of that. And also I wanted to mention that as I was told that London is in fact the largest fair trade city in the world, so <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay, um, I will take um, questions, but what I would ask is that if you may please um, give us your name and your organization. So, the gentleman over there on the. Hi, my name is Scott Naismith, and I'm a doctoral candidate here at the LSE. And I'm just thinking about coffee in particular, uh, Pauline, and you might be able to speak to this better than I, but it seems like if you ask the question, who owns fair trade coffee? it would be the corporations that roast the beans once they come from the producers. Up to 80% of the value added that goes into coffee comes within the, developing, within the developed world. 10% you know, of what actually a, a cup of coffee actually costs actually goes back to the producer. So I was wondering if you can speak to the future of coffee as one of the biggest uh, markets in terms of fair trade. And how do we ensure that the producers can actually roast the beans, vacuum seal the beans, and then send them here? Okay, I'm going to take one more question. Um, the one from this side of the room. Okay, the gentleman right there. Hi, my name's Sagar. I'm a student at, at master student at LSC. Um, this question is mainly aimed at Pauline, but it could be applied to anyone on, on the on the panel. Um, and. It was to do with the statement that fair trade, the, the fair trade label should be specifically for a product, and I was just wondering what the views are on, say, you know, there are fair, fair trade villages, there are fair trade universities, and what what you particularly think about that kind of ownership of a fair trade institution, um, perhaps in more detail. Thanks. Okay, um, so the first question was about coffee and. I will allow. I will ask this, um, the panel, however they want to approach it. And the second question was about um, the brand and whether it we're stretching it, perhaps. So, I don't know who wants to begin with the first question about coffee. Well, I guess one thing. One thing I wanted to point out there. You know, we um, when I was at Marks and Spencer, we talked a lot about how. You know, fair trade gives um, the producers right at the raw material end a, a bit of a fairer deal, um, but actually does not much else than that. Um, but as the fair trade um, cooperatives that we were working with got more money, had more security, they were able to invest in the future. So um, there was a great example in India where we were working with some um, fair trade cotton farmers who were then, once they had a secure income, were able to invest in an organic processing plant um, in India, and they were moving up the value chain um, slowly. Um, but again, all of, uh, in order for that to happen, in order for business to be created and more value to be added in the developing countries, again, it's about needing investment, it's about needing business skills going back into the cooperatives. NGOs um, cannot create 
sustainable, profitable businesses on their own. It needs business input. And so that's why I think this idea of, you know, harnessing all these businesses that are making lots of money and, you know, getting involved in fair trade at this end, how can we harness their skills and get them, you know, putting the investment in and putting the skills in to make, to make that happen? Yeah. Can I? Yeah. I'd also like to add, answer your question. On tea, I don't know much about. Sorry, sorry, I don't know much about coffee. But about tea, I can certainly give you how we have helped people in the region in Darjeeling, you know, help themselves get a better deal. Small farmers traditionally are neglected, so we gave them a better deal in getting them better prices for their leaves. Till they were in a position to construct their own factory and build it. And I think the same model could be used for coffee as well, and so on and so forth. Even another case, with the Hampstead Tea and Coffee Company, they've invested in a paper factory that creates a handmade paper out of wild grass locally, and you take it to the next level. So the package that you see, even though it's of very high value, is actually helping a lot of people, not only on the ground to collect the grass, but to construct the factory, which was even uh, the money was provided for in a cooperative way, and then again, developing skills with educated unemployment separate to create the pact itself, and then land it up here. So you can not only add it in one scale, but you can add the value chain multidimensionally. Yeah, it can be helped, I'm sure, in coffee, too. Okay. Okay, my cautionary tale about what the previous speakers have said is that not that people shouldn't invest in... Sorry, I can't speak to the microphone and look at you. <laughs> you can't speak in the microphone and look, which is more important. I think the microphone... Okay, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, so here's my cautionary tale. Like, there's plenty to be done, plenty of trade access to market, trade development, organizational development. Yeah, I've been doing it a lot, right? Yeah, but but why did we set up Cafe Direct, right? Because the market price crashed, and all these farmers that we've been working with at Twin Trading had really learned, basically, how to get their coffee properly sorted into a container and to the port, and it had nowhere to go. Nowhere to go, no control, no no real toehold in the end market. So, yes, lots of value added is possible. But in the last 15 years, most of the assets of the major companies in the world are no longer in tangible assets. That means factories and, sorry, factories, property, physical things. They're in intangible values. That means the brands, the recipes, the trade secrets, the trademarks, the patents. So for me, one of the things that we learned was, you know, you can get your goods to market, but the real value is in having that most direct of all emotional and commercial connections with an individual consumer, which is a brand. It's a name. It's what, it's the vehicle, it's the most um, powerful vehicle um, in commerce. And so when I look at that, I say, well, where I see the most potential for coffee and other products is in rethinking how intellectual property, intangible value, belongs to low-income producers. And the example I would give you is I've been working for the last five years for a US NGO called Light Years IP, and we worked with the Ethiopians to help them trademark their fine 
um, ancient, fine um, heritage coffees in the end market and to make a licensing agreement for companies to distribute them. Some of you may have noticed because Starbucks resisted <laughs> and got clobbered for their pains. But the reason we did that was because nobody has the right to sell Sidamo coffee for $26 a pound and pay $1.10 as it was at the time at the export, at the border, and then make an enormous fuss about the fact that they'd paid consistently over the New York market price without reference to the retail price. Right? So companies like Starbucks were able to claim you know, in a, in, a, in, a, in a vacuum that they were paying the Ethiopians a really fair price and then going on to sell something to which they had contributed no real value, perhaps a bit of fancy packaging, um, for, for a considerably more. And so just that one initiative, changing the framework for fine coffees between the Ethiopian coffee sector and distributors of fine specialty coffees, added $100 million to the total export of those fine coffees last year without producing one extra bean. So they added $100 million in the first year after setting up that framework. It was far beyond our expectations, I have to admit. And so it's really important that looking ahead, we see that actually when Producers provide distinctiveness, reputation, backstories. They're creating brand equity in the retailers. Mm -hmm. They're creating what we kind of naively call the halo. That halo is worth money. That halo affects the brand value of Tesco's, of Sainsbury's, and of everybody else. But it does nothing to change the relationships between the, the, the people in the chain. So I, I would point to that as, as the way for, for coffee and other products to go. Thank you. I'm going to take three questions. Um, there's the woman on the end. Um, I don't want to exclude this side of the room. I can't see you. Okay, there's the woman there and then the gentleman in the jumper. So one, two, three. Um, hi, my name is Sylvie and I'm doing a master's here in environment and development. My question is, what would you say is the risk of certification criteria at Flow sort of getting co-opted or watered down from sort of pressure from big companies who would like to join in on the, the fair trade certification label and if you would have any suggestions on how Flow or the movement can protect itself from that sort of co-option? Okay, thank you. Um, Hi, uh, my name is Teju and I'm a student here at LSE. Sorry, could you speak up? Um, my name is Teju and I'm a student at LSE. Um, my question is sort of to Katie, I guess. Um, and you were talking about how in, um, partner, partnering with the corporate firms, um, the, that the producers would have to accept lower prices in tough times. And my question is, wouldn't that affect the long-term value of the brand, fair trade, in the sense that you're sort of compromising on the integrity of the movement by asking for unfair prices? And that would, in fact, in the long-term, affect the brand value as well. Okay, thank you. And
Hi, my name's Ed. Um, my question is that on one level, of course, it's great that more and more businesses are getting involved in fair trade. But isn't there a danger of the space that, that fair trade currently occupies getting dominated and colonized by powerful corporations? And might this not lead to a battle in which multinationals try to lower the bar as to what trade counts as fair trade so that fair trade acts as a mask for the exploitation of producers? And if that's the case, how can we guard against that happening? Okay, so we had three very interesting questions. They seem to be linked. The first is about how to prevent the watering down. The second is about the partnering and the compromisation or compromising integrity. And finally, we have the danger of colonisation and co-optation by multinationals. So, Katie, do you want to begin? Okay. Yeah, sure. Um, certainly, my point was not that lower. Um, if you partner with businesses, you've just got to accept lower prices. Absolutely not. Um, I think what, what fair trade has got to find, though, is um, what's the business case for getting involved in fair trade at this time? And they have got to look to how can we make fair trade the best value it can possibly be. So a really good example is cotton, again, um, where at Marks & Spencer, the price, extra price going back to the farmer was tiny in comparison to the extra price it was costing when you got a, when M&S bought a fair trade T-shirt. And that's because there's about seven or eight actors in the cotton supply chain and when a little bit of extra margin is added here, that gets multiplied up and multiplied up. Um, there was also costs to doing fair trade cotton, which were beyond just the premium going to farmers. Some of the cotton was of lower quality, and there was th you know, things that spinners had to do differently. They had to slow their machines down because some of the quality was lower, that kind of thing. So there's lots of things that the businesses can do by partnering with their supply chain. I mean, M&S had never, ever been to a cotton farm before. It never knew who its spinners were. In many cases, it didn't even know who its fabric manufacturers were. But Fairtrade forced the business to know all of those things, to create linkages all the way down the chain, and to, and to get cost out where you could take it out in, in a good way. Um, so that was, that was the first point. I think on the, on the question of our businesses trying to water down the certification, the standards, actually one of the complaints I've heard from producers is actually some of the things that businesses are requiring, because they're so worried about their image, is actually way above what should be expected of a small producer, um, particularly on the environmental standards and some of the sort of labour standards. You know, we don't like to think of children working in fields, but in some cases where there are no schools, that's just a reality. And, you know, stopping the children from working is actually bad. So, um, in some cases. So, um, you know, actually what I've heard is that some of the standards that businesses are trying to push up, and that's disadvantaging the most marginalised producers. Um, but again, I think this, this point about the kind of the activists and the movement, the conversations that the fair trade movement is now able to have with Justin King from Sainsbury's, Stuart Rose at M&S, getting in to talk to the buyers, that would have never, ever happened before. So I don't think the fair trade movement should feel like it's lost its teeth and it's not an activist anymore, because you are, but it's just activism in a different way. And I believe the conversations you're having and the changes, your structural changes you're making in these big businesses are actually much, much bigger than you probably, um, than you, you sort of probably think um, by getting, you know, sometimes being seen to get into bed with some of the big businesses. Okay. I don't know... Um Taiborn or to respond. Issue about dilution of uh, fair trade standards at all levels when it becomes mainstream. It has become mainstream, and everybody wanting to join the man wagon. Of course, it's a reality. It's bound to happen, and I think that uh, 
more policing needs to be done, and it should be done in a way that's very transparent and effective. And instead of loading it with bureaucracy, we could streamline it down to simple patterns that actually eliminates at different levels, that would be a way out and not increase with excessive bureaucracy and further confusion. I do agree, and I think we need to reorient our standards there and rework it. I agree with you there. Just case in point. Anyone else want to respond on the point of watering down, compromising? No. Well, I, mean, I think anyone who's involved in fair trade has, you know, we've all had to um, endure some kind of horrendous degree of regulation um, and certification, and uh, we all moan terribly about it, and you guys don't tend to hear the kind of inner struggles within the movement about product standards and producer certification systems. But um, I think what, what we're trying to point out, that the regulation is very stringent on, on you know, village-based cooperatives in developing countries and very loose in the developed world. Mm. In fact, there is barely any regulation for the people who are selling the fair trade products. So when people are talking about fair trade partnerships, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm reiterating Pauline's point, let's interrogate what that partnership really is and let, let's really not heap on a whole load more of regulation, mm -hmm. um, but let's, let's really work actively to, to harness the considerable resources that these retailers have to invest in developing countries so that genuinely these are meaningful fair trade partnerships. I mean, I want to say something in defense of the fair trade mark systems, but then I want to sort of smash it again. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, all of the, you know, so in each country you have something like the Fair Trade Foundation, right, which manages nationally a nice sovereign territory, its mark, right, and you've got one in lots of different countries of the world, and then thankfully for everybody, they managed to create a supranational institution so that fair trade coffee meant the same thing in the US as Japan, as otherwise we would have really all been in a lot of trouble. <laughs> so, you know, we've got that, that's cool. But this is a structure that evolved. It wasn't designed. And it's not really cut out to do what's now needed. And I think one of the things that's needed is to stop certification being some hark back to you know, 19th century colonial overseers going down to visit them their plantations. Because I'm afraid some of those inspectors really should go find another career in the <laughs> civil service or something, right? They, they wouldn't know what you know, humane relationships, you know, educational relationships were like with if they slapped them between the eyes. So, you know, this evolved and, you know, there's been a sort of straining at the evolutionary process to make sure it was credible and met ISO trillion and one or whatever one it had to meet to be a certification system. That's the one side. But, you know, here's, here's the thing. I think, Kate, you know, you put it in a complete nutshell. You know, this is really lopsided. I mean, how many people in this room know how many products of green and black chocolate are fair trade certified? You can only put up your hand if you really, really One, know. One, two, three, four. Okay, who thinks that all green and blacks is fair trade? Okay, we've got a little spattering there. Who thinks half of green and blacks products are fair trade certified? I'm talking about fair trade certified. 
Who's the leading question? They know you're trying to... <laughs> <laughs> I know, but that's all right, because I don't want to make people feel bad, because they don't know. <laughs> so, surprise, surprise, who can tell me how many of Green and Black's umpteen products... That's be say Cadbury, shouldn't we? Cadbury's owns Green and Black's. Green and Black's, how many fair trade certified products are there? Thank you. How many? Yes, one. <laughs> Do you know how many, how many tons of fair trade cocoa they bought for that? I happen to know, but this has to be confidential. Turn the podcast off. 46 tons. Isn't that exciting? That's four containers. Wow. Right? So here you go. We want fair trade to mean what it means. So stop them acting as if they're fair trade. Let's get professional. Let's get regulatory, right? Or you know, disciplined and professional, <laughs> right, in the areas that really matter, because we're talking about marketing and voice and consumer opinions and consumer information. You know, this should be stopped, and it can be stopped. So our own fair trade leaders, whether yeah. they're Fair Trade Foundation or others, the NGOs that back fair trade, have to start getting really serious. Mm -hmm. And that means that the thing that was described mm -hmm. at the beginning about saying, well, we've had this period when, you know, we didn't think we'd get as far as we would if we were critical. Actually, we won't get much further that's worth having if we're not critical, mm -hmm. right? So okay, thank you. We've got very interesting issues about being in more effective on the inside or outside or critical or not. Okay, um, three more questions. Um, I'm going to take one. Um, two and three, and then we'll. Yes. Yes, mine is about towards the whole concept of the major issues being addressed here in terms of the rules, the policies, the fairness, and the power. The controls that you're dealing have always been one sided in terms of unfair to the South, with special reference to Raja and Charlie Chinonga. Chibonga. <laughs> in terms of the South side, can fair trade really readdress the global imbalance produced space in trade, considering the power of multinational corporations in the influencing countries? So, okay, the question is about power. Second. Yeah, mine, sorry, I'm Julian. I am not affiliated to any organisation. But my question was specifically, I suppose, to Katie, but could be answered by anybody. Um, how can big business and partner fair trade in particular when, as the gentleman said over there, the value is added in the West in particular, and um, when trade is characterised by um, unfair institutions, unfair trading structures, and lack of standards across the board? Um, I agree when you said that perhaps partnership is... Um, much is, is a much more um, conducive to success, but that when there's no incentive for altruism without standards that uh, that don't exist, then there's no incentive for these organisations to act um, with altruism. Okay. And also, when there's a, an absolutely minute percentage of big business is actually trading in fair trade, should there be not more policing to make sure that they do actually um, trade fairly? Okay, thank you. Question about incentives to partner. And finally, Ireland. Hi, my name is Chrysanthi. I'm from Social Enterprise magazine. Um, and I'd like to test how radical the panel is, is willing to be. 
Um, and so, and I'd like to ask, you know, if we're talking about changing power relationships, there are supermarkets like the Co-op, there's um, John Lewis, you know, who are partnerships, who do challenge power relationships in the way that they treat their staff. I mean, is it perhaps time to think about only selling fair trade products in organisations that do challenge the status quo? I mean, there are lots of village shops being set up as social enterprises. It, this could actually help reinvigorate small high streets. I mean, is that going a step too far? Okay, very interesting question. Thank you. Indeed, my nationals have got power, but uh, one of the most powerful of all in the value chain are consumers. So if consumers are making demands on multinationals on being more fair and playing their role in empowering the producers, it can happen because they've got the muscle, they've got the economic ability of stopping from buying from that multinational if they are not complying. So consumers have got power, which can be much more than the multinationals have. Thank you. Okay. Okay. I think it's a really interesting question from Chrysanthi. Um, have we emailed each other? Do we have? <laughs> 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 no, I recognize your name. Anyway, sorry. Um, and I really think, I mean, for us, Tropical Whole Foods, we wouldn't exist without the independent whole food, whole food and health food shops. And you mustn't talk about them being unsanitary. <laughs> <laughs> so, in the old days. Okay, okay. But yeah, so independent retailers, great. And, and, and fantastic supporters of pioneering products, you know, for decades, obviously. Um, we're not in John Lewis, so I can't comment on how it, I know about their ownership structures. But it's also about priorities within companies, isn't it? That's a priority for John Lewis, but do they have a priority to back fair trade? I don't, I don't know enough about it to, to answer on that, but people will make priorities for their area of social responsibility. Um, you know, the supermarkets have their, their different natures, their different characters, but I, I think, um, and so do individual buyers, but I think for, you know, as someone who is constantly under pressure from producers to be buying more volume from them all the time, you know, the, the, the bit... Every fair trade registered supplier will only be selling a tiny percentage of their produce under fair trade terms. I mean, you're, you were saying 8%? That's right. 8%? Uh, probably about 8%, yeah. About 8%. Yeah. So, you know, we are constantly under pressure to deliver volume purchases to our suppliers. And if we really took a stance where we didn't distribute tropical whole foods at all to any UK supermarkets or just to John Lewis or whatever, you know, we would not be thanked for that by our, our, our producers, you know. So. Um, Raja, did you want to comment on the power issue? Or? <laughs> I think what my friend Uvia has um, really said is, uh, in a nutshell, what it is. The consumer is the ultimate king. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can produce for all your worth, but unless you don't have a marketing tied up, you know, everything crashes. Sure. So when you talk about fair trade, we're talking about, as we discussed earlier, we're talking about an idea here. It's a concept that you have to be fair to yourself first. Charity begins at home. And then when you learn to love yourself for the right reasons, then only you can take it to the next step. And then you can take it into a wider and wider firmament. And that's where transfer, um, fair trade comes in. Because all, all folk are actually essentially united by one cause. 
that is to, to be fair and to get every, let everybody have a fair deal. Of course, rules, regulations, evolutions in different places will occur, but ultimately it is a consumer who is king and it's the consumer who calls the shots. So if the consumer is really caring, you can really take it to the next level and even do it with legislation. Of course you can't, but it would be an <laughs> idealistic state anyway. So there you go. Thank you. Yes, that of course. Big, that big question is quite important. We shouldn't lose it. It's like, you know, there's so many things that aren't right, and, you know, isn't this just a piddly little number? And I, you know, and I say, well, you know, I do have my days when I think it's like that. But I do think, you know, the, the, uh, uh, you know, because I'm having a throwback, you know, 20 year throwback indulgence, that one of the things that was always touted about the so called Nicaraguan Revolution and why it got up the American noses so much was uh, in, the, in the slogan of the time that there's always the threat of a good example. Mm. And I think, you know, when we set up Divine Chocolate, into a mature market, which to this day, fair trade has been resisted tooth and nail by, there's only five companies that really own nearly all the chocolate products that you see. You may have 600 to choose from, but there's probably three companies that provide every single one of those bars. So it's a really mature, impenetrable market. We set up Divine Chocolate with um, one sixth of the amount that Cadbury spent launching a one single bar the year that we launched. Right? and have managed to make it through into that mature market um, to a status of distribution and recognition um, by consumers, um, but also by industry. And you know, the, the managing director of Divine just got, I don't remember if it was an MBE or an OBE, for services to industry, which in the back of my head I thought was quite funny. I thought it was services to producers and chocolate lovers, but there you go. <laughs> Apparently it was more important and it was one of the objectives. So I do think, you know, I mean, I think the, quest, the thing is that if you don't think through what the problems are and find something very real to do to show that it can be done differently, then everyone kind of sinks into a bit of a quagmire. Oh, it can't be done. And that's when you start talking about wishy-washy things like, well, without business it can't be done. To hell with it. You know, you can show business how it should be done and force them to respond. That's much more, you know, my style anyway. Do you want to respond? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, divine chocolate is a business, right? It's a profit-making business, so we're not on different sides here. But I think I'm going to just about to get really controversial, so put my helmet on. Okay. Um, I'm not just talking about partnering with big business, but I'm going to talk about partnering with buyers and buying directors and somebody said okay how can you partner with big business and you know um, isn't everything just so unfair that you know this can't possibly work well I used to work with a lot of buyers and they didn't go to work of a morning to screw their suppliers <laughs> they weren't nasty beings that hid their horns under their heads you know in a lot of cases in the retailers, the buying function is being squeezed and squeezed and squeezed itself. It's becoming leaner and leaner. Buyers are buying more and more categories. And they're taking the shortcut in a lot of cases, which is just a bit of margin squeeze, because they're not set up properly. And that's a fundamental issue. But the buyers themselves aren't nasty people. So that's the first thing. Um, and 
When I'm saying about partnering a business, I'm not saying all of a sudden you've got to love them, you've got to not police them, you've not got to set standards, but once you enter into a mature business partnership with somebody, um, you can set rules, you can have meetings and you can you know, talk as two adults about um, the way you want the partnership to work. Um, and so I think, you know, I think that's really, really important. That I'm not saying that you know, businesses just should just have a free-for-all and you know, you know, get going on fair trade, but it's about bringing them, bringing them into the fold and, and holding them to account and setting some of these rules, but saying these are the rules you have to follow and this is the business case for doing that. Mm -hmm. And what we're seeing with our clients at the moment is you know, there's a really big business case building around resource scarcity, like you know, the, the elephant in the room with all of this nice thing about green products is there's massive overconsumption. We, the world can't keep producing all the products it produces if everyone wants to consume like us. And so there is going to be resource scarcity, there is going to be a you know, scarcity of quality um, products. And so in the, it's happening at the moment, the shift is going from the power with the retailers to the power um, at the other end. And you know, there, there, there is a shift, it's gradual, but it's happening. And so I think you know, there's, there's something about a business case for both parties getting mm -hmm. together and having a mature relationship which is based on a set of rules but is based on a sort of an equal footing from both sides. Okay, thank you. Um, last three questions because we're almost out of time. So the woman here and then the gentleman there and the woman on the end. Okay, first of all, um, I'd like to commend all the fair trade campaigners for all their efforts and everything you guys have been doing. Um, my name's Tola and I'm from Southampton, University of Southampton. Um, my question is for everyone. Um, there's a debate on ownership of fair trade, but essentially it could be argued that um, ownership ultimately lies in the north, i.e. you know, Western countries. Um, although farmers in the south are, you know, they benefit from these um, schemes and education and empowerment, etc. Fair trade is global. Are there any um, schemes you guys are thinking about doing to, um, to essentially tell other people in south southern countries about fair trade? Because I know that some people in southern countries would rather go into a store and buy, let's say, Cadbury's rather than buying local, you know, fair trade produce. And I think, although that the north are ultimately, you know, key. Um, Okay, that's buyers, sorry, <laughs> buyers of these products. I think looking towards the south should be something you should think about too. So Thank advocacy you. in the south as well as the north, okay. Um, one of you made the observation that uh, fair trade is one word and is kind of unstoppably coming to become more of a brand. And what I was curious about was if one of you could characterize um, the relationship between other certifying agencies such as uh, Rainforest Alliance and what is going to characterize the future of the competition between um, new certifying uh, Okay, the question is about the competing but, but I'm, brands. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Also, is, is it going to be um, a race towards fairest trade or is it going to kind of dilute the consumer's um, ability to keep track or an account of all the different standards. Okay, and the question was about, is it going to dilute it or is it going to be fairest? And the final question. Hello, my name is Judith Blunden, and I do market research. And I've got two questions, I think they're quite simple. Um, 
if we'd been talking about free trade, you'd have had people who were pro it and anti it. And I, I, as we were at the LSE, I was expecting to have an economist from somewhere within the organization who said, who was arguing um, against fair trade. And I, I wondered whether you, I mean, thought of trying to find someone like that or whether it didn't exist. And my second question is that everybody on the panel, then it would have been a debate. In fact, you're all on the same side, but on varying degrees. I don't um, think they are on the same side. Well, they are <laughs> all on the same side. Okay. Katie had to be on one side. Okay, can we get to the question, the please? Yes. Well, the question was, did you think of having an economist who, uh, was a, is there such a thing within the LSE to argue a sort of, okay. this whole thing is a waste of time? And the second question is, you've all been talking about um, that more and more people believe in fair trade and know about it. When I was doing research on fair trade, say, 10 years ago, about 2% knew anything about it, and I would like to know what percentage of people in Britain know anything about fair trade and what do they know? Okay. Because you've all been talking about it if we knew it. So the question is about who, why don't we invite an economist? And the second is about, you'll answer that, Tom. And the second is how many people know about fair trade? So. What is meant by fair trade? Okay, I'm going to um, start with Pauline, and if we could keep the remarks quite brief, please. So Pauline, and then just work our way down. If you have comments, if you don't, you don't have to. Well, I think anybody who wanted to stand up here and defend, you know, conventional capitalist system right now would be insane. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this, funnily enough, fair trade is a, in World Bank speak, a market-based system, right? You know, and however much Adam Smith Institute twits <laughs> tried to critique it, I'm surprised, not surprised he's not here because he made such silly arguments. Could have made them better myself. But anyway, so okay. fair trade is a market-based system. Someone who tried to step up here and, says, and say it distorts and so on, meanwhile our government's nationalizing the banks and everything else. I think, you know, I think the timing's not right for defending all that neoliberal stuff. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't organize it, I'm chairing it, so we will get to Tom. I just want to give the panel, <laughs> I'm going to shift the responsibility. Okay, no. How many people support fair trade? 70% of households purchased a fair trade product, but that doesn't mean, I mean, your point is very interesting about what the level of understanding is. And, and you know, if, if we've been giving an internal, a bit of a kind of internal view on fair trade here, and I'm sorry if it's not being clear enough, but um, it was a penetrating question and we wanted to not just do a kind of big PR kind of propaganda thing for fair trade. We wanted to try and explore some of the issues within it. Yes, okay. Sorry, we'll continue that. Yeah. Yeah. 70%. 70%. Okay. And also, I wanted to address um, Jacob's question yeah. over there about yes, do I these different brands I actually think there do is anything? a real race going on between the different certification systems, and, it, and a very well put, a race to define who is the fairest. Who, okay. It's like the of mirror, the mirror on the wall, wall isn't it? <laughs> um, and, and, I, and it'll be very interesting to see how, how, I mean, definitely fair trade is trying to establish itself as the gold standard. Um, and, and, you know, the, it's the mark I'm going to go with. I'm not, our company is certainly not going to go with Rainforest Alliance. So. 
Okay, we are. Okay, Katie. Um, just two quick words. Being from um, a retail, big business background, competition is really, really good. It drives innovation. It's going to make the whole system more efficient. So, yeah, bring it on. And fair trade can win because it's the best. All right. <laughs> okay. I don't want to be the, you know, the oppressor, but I will have to stop because, but we can continue our discussion. Um, I want to invite everyone to Cafe Pepe, where they do sell fair trade products um, for reception. But before that, I want to thank the audience for a very lively debate and also apologize for some of the people I didn't get to your questions. And finally, last but not least, I want to thank all the speakers for truly giving us a debate. I'm sorry, someone felt we didn't do what was written on the tin. But, um, and finally, I want to thank Tom from um, Trading Visions for organizing this and for all your hard work, and also the staff at the Center for Civil Society, Maria Schlegel and Jane Schiemann. Thank you again for everyone, and please join us at the reception.